Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 10. My name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released Jesus Center Daily, Daily Devotional. Um, Last night, when we met with our uh, home group in our uh, retrofitted, unfinished basement, at the very end, my wife did something sweet. She told everyone there that uh, the Jesus Center Daily has just won a silver medal in the Illumination Book Awards. So um, that was a sweet surprise. So uh, grateful for all of you who have uh, bought or and or given given away this devotional. And so many of you have uh, gone out of your way to tell me um, how much the Jesus Center Daily has been a blessing to you. So thank you. Thank you so much. It makes a, a big difference to complete this circle of connection between what I wrote and how you're experiencing it. So if you haven't yet gotten a copy of the Jesus Center Daily and you want to check it out, you can go to my website, jesuscenteredaily.com. That's jesuscenteredaily.com. And there you can get a free 10-day sampler if you want. Uh, you can watch a little intro video or you can order the book from, right from there, or you can just go to Amazon if you want to and order it from there. They, they seem to change the price on it from day to day. Just They, they like sample the right price. That's so bizarre. The, 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 the most unusual pricing strategy, but I'm sure there's brilliance behind it. But um, right now, uh, today, as we're re- uh, releasing this podcast episode, it's the lowest price it's been since it was released. So uh, head on over there if you want. It's a good time to think about perhaps buying a, a gift for someone that you love at, at Easter, someone that uh, maybe has never really gotten into this practice or this uh, uh, this experience of a daily way of reconnecting with Jesus. And maybe this will be the, the devotion that helps them to do that. So um, head on over to jesuscenteredaily.com or just go directly to Amazon and Look for the Jesus Center Daily. There's also, I'll also put a link, uh, links to this on our episode page for this episode of the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. So this is actually the second episode in a new series I'm calling Jesus People. We'll be exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of both his friends and his enemies, just the people he encounters along the way. Now, some of these people will be well-known to you, Um, either as friends or enemies, and some will be a little bit more obscure. Some have a longer uh, encounter with Jesus and some just a very brief encounter. That will be the fun of exploring these these people in Jesus' life. And the premise here is that you can learn a lot about a person by simply paying attention to the people that either love him or hate him. (laughs) You you can learn a lot about that person from both, uh, both trajectories. And that's our mission here is to discover the heart of Jesus through the lens of the people around him. Um, in our first episode in this series, I, I uh, quoted Dr. Peter Kreeft, who's a Boston University professor and a C.S. Lewis scholar, um, from a, a lecture he gave to a group of students at his school 
that he called Jesus Shock. And then out of that came later a book called Jesus Shock, which is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But he said something in that lecture that just has always struck me. I try to find a way to plant this in almost every book I write. <laughs> but here's the start of what he said. It kind of captures the essence of his, of his approach to introducing his students to Jesus. He said, Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he has not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. I love that last phrase. When you touch him, you touch lightning. You will be changed one way or another. He, Jesus has a way of removing the middle ground <laughs> in his encounters with people. And we'll certainly see that in the encounter he has with the person we're going to uh, focus on in this episode. His name is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. And at the time he meets Jesus, he's an old man. But he's not just any Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which I guess you could say the equivalent in our culture would be that he's a member of the Supreme Court. That means he's an honored and very important um, appointed leader among 23 Jewish elders who formed the temple court. They made decisions about things. They, uh, they advised other leaders about things, and they pronounced judgments as well. And Nicodemus is a part of this very august body. And at the point in time when Nicodemus meets Jesus, Jesus is all, already persona non grata with most Pharisees, and particularly the Sanhedrin. They do not like him. They're threatened by him. Um, they don't understand him. They see him as someone who could topple their power, potentially. Um, they, they know that uh, Jesus is different than other so-called prophets that have moved through their culture, and they see him as a great threat. So the encounters that Jesus has with Nicodemus, this older man who almost inexplicably risks everything to meet with him and to advocate for him. That's what makes Nicodemus an interesting person to explore. Why does Nicodemus act the way he does with Jesus? And he's mentioned just three times in the Gospel of John. And we're going to spend most of our time on that first, first meeting uh, that Nicodemus has. It's under cover of darkness because, as I said, Jesus is already quite controversial among the Jewish religious leaders. So Nicodemus has tremendous curiosity about him, but he does not want to lose his status or position or identity by publicly connecting with Jesus or advocating for him. He has some questions that he wants to explore, but he wants to do it in private. So he comes to Jesus at night, full of these questions, and with a good amount of skepticism. Now, the question is, when you think about skepticism as a, as a characteristic, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think you can make a case for both that skepticism can be good or it can be bad. Um, in, it, in its good form, it can fuel our curiosity, right? And it can be the momentum behind our learning and eventually lead to foundational truths. Skepticism that treats things as not self-evident can actually get to the heart of things, right? It can also keep us engaged and observant and grounded. Uh, it can really drive a deeper understanding of things, but 
it can also, on the negative side, keep us at a distance from people and things, and, and it can undermine our ability to trust in the end. Um, sometimes skeptics are so skeptical that they, they never allow themselves to dive in. They never go all in. They, they use it as a tool to stay outside of things. So that's the downside of it. And it's important for us to consider skepticism and curiosity because this is what's fueling Nicodemus's encounter with Jesus. It helps to know, well, where is his heart and head at when he enters into this conversation? So uh, in this late night visit, Nicodemus brings his curiosity uh, almost as an offering to Jesus. So uh, we, we can learn a lot about Jesus by paying close attention to how he related to this distinguished and wise elder that he meets with, who comes to Jesus with caution, but with a sense of eagerness as well. So I thought what we could do is uh, listen to a scene from the series, The Chosen, that fleshes out this first encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, if you haven't started watching The Chosen yet, it's a series that so many of my friends who I, I really respect have urged me to watch this. And for one reason or another, our family just has not started to watch this series. And when I was poking around to look for uh, ways of understanding this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus, up popped on YouTube this, this uh, kind of extended scene. It's about eight minutes long where, where they reimagined and re-narrated this very intimate scene between Jesus and Nicodemus at night. And wow, it was so powerful for me to watch this. I will put a link to this scene on YouTube onto our uh, episode page, the, the uh, season six, episode 10 page for uh, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. You just go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and that's where you'll find these links. So I'll put a link to this scene so you can actually watch it um, if you'd like to, but we're going to listen to it. And so I want to set, set this up because, you know, it, it hampers our ability to take in all the power of the scene when we can't see the people, but you're going to hear an old man, uh, the voice of an old man, and that's Nicodemus who's pursuing Jesus. And you're going to hear the voice of Jesus. That sounds a little bit more like what the voice of Jesus would have sounded like had we actually allowed for his uh, Jewish Mediterranean background to enter into his inflection. <laughs> so it's obviously in English, but you'll hear Jesus talking in a way maybe that you haven't heard him represented in film or uh, in a TV series before. He actually has an accent. <laughs> so you'll hear uh, Jesus, Jesus's voice interacting with uh, Nicodemus's voice here. And here's two things I just want you to think about as we listen to this. What can you infer about Nicodemus based on how he interacts with Jesus in this scene? And what can you infer about Jesus based on how he interacts with Nicodemus in this scene? That's what I want you to sort of listen to this um, uh, as a filter as we go. So Let's go ahead and listen to this scene, and then we'll talk about it. Don't know where to start. I have so many questions. Shall we sit first? Oh, yes, of course. The eastern slums. Hmm. 
Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell the paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, and she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the spirit. The spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the spirit, you can recognize his effect. consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes, but even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes, they wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents 
and they were dying. But, but God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students that she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her healed.
can tell me nothing except that I am standing on holy ground. <laughs> holy roof. <laughs> So what what you couldn't see, for obvious reasons, um, I need to tell you. <laughs> and then please do go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for the link and watch this scene yourself. Uh, but toward the end there, uh, Nicodemus and Jesus get up from the, from the outdoor uh, rooftop table they're sitting at in the middle of the night. And uh, you hear Nicodemus getting emotional. And he says he's standing on holy ground, or at least a holy roof. <laughs> and he's recognizing that Jesus may exactly be who he says he is. And so he, he lowers himself to the ground. He, he kneels in front of Jesus and he kisses his hand. And it's interesting in this interaction, it's no, it's hard to hear. It's even hard to hear when you're watching it. But Jesus softly says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Nicodemus says, um, I'm kissing the hand of the son so that he might not be angry with me. He's essentially expressing um, the Old Testament God belief that God is to be feared and that worship emanates from a place of fear, really that Nicodemus is saying, I, I better kneel before you and I better kiss your hand because if you're really God, then this is what I'm supposed to do. I guess that's a way of, of describing what happens in that scene. And when Jesus says, what are you doing? He's saying it in a way that says, don't do this. And he lifts Nicodemus up by his hands again and says, in contrast, take refuge in me. You have nothing to fear in me. And then Jesus reaches forward and just embraces Nicodemus in this huge bear hug. And Nicodemus just starts to weep and, and shake. And that's the end of the scene. And I just love the way the creators of The Chosen have reimagined this scene. Um, it's I think it's faithful to the gospel account, um, but it also adds in the little connective tissue that you need for this narrative to become human. And that moment when Jesus says, what are you doing? What are you doing? We would think, well, of course, the right thing to do is to worship, but Nicodemus is, is bowing to worship because he thinks he's supposed to. 
and that he better do it or else he, things could not go well for him. And Jesus doesn't want that kind of motivation for worship. He lifts Nicodemus to his feet and embraces him as a beloved friend. Uh, so uh, again, I think that's the most uh, powerful, moving version of that encounter I've ever seen uh, in any film or series or anything. <laughs> it just is so well done. I can't encourage you enough to to watch the link and then maybe watch the series. Our family is going to finally uh, uh, past our tipping point, start watching The Chosen <laughs> because I've had, again, so many who've told me how well done it is. And uh, so I asked you to think about what you can infer about Nicodemus based on this interaction with Jesus and what we can infer about Jesus based on how he interacts with Nicodemus. Another way of saying that is, well, what's one thing we know for sure about Nicodemus based only on this encounter? And what's one thing we know for sure about Jesus based only on this encounter? This is for longtime listeners of the podcast, you know, this is called the Oprah question. Oprah Winfrey in the back of her magazine at the end of every show, she used to ask, I think the most brilliant interview question I've ever heard, which is she'd ask her celebrity guest, whoever it was, um, what's one thing you know for sure? It's that one thing and the for sure that make that such a great question. And I've morphed it into what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus based only on this scripture passage. That's a, it's a way of reading scripture. If you stop and ask yourself from the little portion that you've read, what's one thing I know for sure about Jesus just based on this passage is if this was all I had of the gospel um, and this is all I knew about Jesus, what's the one thing I'd know for sure about him. So we can do the same thing with almost anything. What's one thing we know for sure about Nicodemus and what's one thing we would know for sure about Jesus based on this encounter. And um, I asked our home group this very same question after they watched this scene. And I loved, I just loved the conversation we had about this. So I'm going to walk through some of the things we talked about um, after we watched the scene and first we'll tackle Nicodemus. What are some things that we know for sure about Nicodemus? This is our crowdsourced uh, insights into this scene. So first of all, we know that Nicodemus has shown up in the night uh, to meet with Jesus because he wants to learn. His curiosity is driving him past his boundaries and, and causing him to risk. Um, he's open. Unlike a lot of the encounters Jesus has with Pharisees who are completely closed from the get-go, Nicodemus inexplicably is open. Now, he's very intelligent, obviously. He's, he's one of the Sanhedrin, so you don't get there by accident. Um, he's a scholar. Uh, Jesus says so himself in this encounter. He's very meth methodical in his exploration of who Jesus is and what he intends to do. He's almost... Uh, I, I find it beautiful that he's, he's like a child in the way that he asks his questions. That openness is childlike, which is, again, unusual for a Pharisee who most of our information about the Pharisees that Jesus met, they're just arrogant and insecure. Nicodemus is different. There's something different about him. He believes in God's power. He says so. He's seen it but he doesn't really understand how or why Jesus intends to use that power. Like everyone else, 
uh, and you can see why this would be true at this time, that the Jews had only, uh, you know, what we would call an Old Testament understanding of God. And in the Old Testament, when God came to rescue his people, he did it circumstantially very often. If they were under oppression, he released them. Even the thing that in this scene that Jesus reminds Nicodemus about, um, the serpent, the bronze serpent being lifted up to rescue his people, the rescue was from, from this plague of snakes in the wilderness. And it was circumstantial issues that they needed rescue from. And so, of course, everyone's expecting the Messiah to bring circumstantial rescue to them. And that the, the, the thing that's hardest for them to, to deal with is the Roman oppression they've been living under, which has been absolutely brutal. And so, of course, we would be just like them. If we knew there was a Messiah who had appeared, who had come to rescue, we would immediately think of being rescued from our circumstantial pain. Like if, if Jesus if came during this time, during our, the pandemic, one of the first things we would ask of him is, have you come to rescue us from this pandemic? And that's essentially what Nicodemus is assuming the Messiah has come to do as well. In the episode, in our first episode in this series on Judas, Judas had the same mindset. He believed the Messiah would, was supposed to come as an insurrectionist, someone who would lead the Jews out from under the thumb of the Roman oppression. So it's not a surprise that Nicodemus also assumes that this is what the Messiah has come to do. Um, but that is a wrong impression. And in this scene, you hear Jesus say to Nicodemus, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what I've come to do. Now, I've come to bring a kingdom, a kingdom. And it's not a, the kind of kingdom that Nicodemus or the other Jewish leaders really understand because they're quite literal. Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees are all quite literal. Their focus is on the law, not on relationship. The head rather than the heart, I guess, is another way of saying that. And what is hard to understand about Jesus is that he's come to bring heart reconciliation to the people, to, to build a bridge of re intimate relationship that was broken, to build it back so that we could enjoy deep and intimate fellowship with, with God. He's come to reconnect the heart to the heart. Um, this is very hard to accept and understand for religious leaders and really anyone at this time. But as we said before, Nicodemus has an overriding humility about him. He doesn't lead really from a place of insecurity and arrogance. Uh, even when Jesus asks him, do you know where the wind comes from or where the wind goes to? A typical Pharisee response to that would be, of course I do. And, and to almost create uh, a, an answer on the spot. And instead, Nicodemus says, no, I don't know where it comes from or where it goes to. There's a, there's a fundamental humility about him, and he has a heart for his people. Just because he assumes the Messiah has come to release the people from the oppression of the Romans doesn't mean that there's something um, stupid about him or thick about him. No, he has a heart for his people. The people are suffering. He wants their suffering to end. So it's a legitimate desire. And yet Jesus says, that's not why I've come. I've come for something bigger and greater and deeper. And this, of course, plunges Nicodemus into a kind of a midlife crisis. 
because of what he's seen Jesus say and do, and now what he's hearing coming out of his mouth, everything that he has accepted as normal um, in the narrative of his life is being challenged. Um, meeting Jesus is like what Peter Kreeft has said, like touching lightning. He, he doesn't leave anyone unchanged, and Nicodemus's life surely here is upended because he's being invited into something that will mean a massive change in his life if he responds to that invitation. And beyond that, his worldview and his expectations and everything about what he has considered normal is being upended by what Jesus is saying and doing. So what's beautiful about Nicodemus, I think, is his skepticism and curiosity drives him to risk meeting him in the night. He knows it's dangerous. He knows he could lose his status, his position, maybe even his life for pursuing Jesus, but he can't help himself. There's something magnetic and attractive about Jesus, and he just has to find out for himself. In this way, I think we can learn a lot from Nicodemus that we, we consider the risks in front of us and the barriers, which sometimes include our own passivity, and instead we allow our skepticism and our curiosity to drive us to the heart of Jesus, to taste and see what he's really about, to linger long enough to let that taste savor in our mouth. Who is he? Why is he? What, what does it mean to follow him? And why would he ask so much? And in asking so much in this scene, Jesus responds to Nicodemus, yes, it is a lot, but you'll have to trust me on this. What you'll receive in return is far greater than what you'll give up. It's hard for us to imagine giving up what we know for the sake of what we don't know and assume that that, that thing that we don't know is going to be greater. We, it's just not how we're wired as human beings. And this is where this is at the core of Jesus's invitation to Nicodemus. You'll have to trust me, skeptic. <laughs> what do you know of my heart? What does your heart tell you? Jesus asks Nicodemus in this scene. I love that. Instead of just answering Nicodemus's question, um, Jesus says, what does your heart tell you? And Nicodemus, honest man that he, has, that he is, uh, says, I think you must be God. <laughs> so what, what's, what are some one things we can know for sure about Jesus based only on this encounter? Let's explore that for a moment. So yes, Jesus is God. But he is not condescending in how he relates to Nicodemus. He doesn't treat uh, Nicodemus uh, by looking down on him or scoffing at his answers or um, uh, responding to him with a tinge of arrogance. He doesn't do any of that. He's respectful in this conversation. Now, he's not passive. He's not you know, what you, what you might call soft, there's a firmness behind his interactions with Nicodemus, yet he never lords it over him. And you think about a person meeting God. This is why Nicodemus, when he's convinced that Jesus is who he says he is at the end, uh, immediately drops to his knees because that's what you do when you're in the presence of God. But you don't get that feeling in this conversation that, yes, 
there is something other about Jesus, but he's not pushing the envelope with that in the conversation. Instead, he offers Nicodemus a thrilling invitation. It's not a should, like Nicodemus, you should really follow me. Um, if, if you believe I am who I am, then, then you're, you're going to have to follow me. Instead, he offers him the invitation of a relationship. Really, the, when it comes down to it, what Jesus is offering is himself to Nicodemus. Will you join me? Will you walk with us? Will you become a part of this little community? Will you enter in? And Nicodemus, of course, understands what that would mean if he says yes, that it means uh, his position, his role, his very identity would have a massive shift if he were to take Jesus up on this. But what's beautiful about this is Jesus understands that, but he, he asks anyway, and he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't take the edge off of it. He understands that it will cost Nicodemus something to follow, but he knows the richness of the treasure that Nicodemus would gain if he did. So, of course, he respects Nicodemus as a scholar. Um, he, he, uh, he, he treats his questions like the questions of a scholar, even though at one point he, I love it in this scene where Jesus says, are, are you, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm teaching you the things of, of the earth, but, and you can't understand those. How, how could you understand the things of the spirit? But he says it in a lighthearted way, not a finger jabbing way. He's, 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 an, he's an intelligent man talking to another intelligent man. That's the feeling that you get in this conversation. There's a mutuality and a relaxed atmosphere around this encounter. And it's so inviting when you hear this scene imagined this way. Jesus is, of course, relationally focused, but he's bold. And again, not, not in sort of an in-your-face way. But he's bold in his invitation. He's bold in his declaration. And he's bold enough and, and secure enough that he doesn't need Nicodemus to say yes to him in order to um, bolster his identity. He doesn't need Nicodemus to throw his support behind him in order to validate his messiahness. <laughs> he doesn't need that. So he's free to invite and he can be disappointed and even maybe discouraged if Nicodemus says no, because he's hoping for him. He, he, he's, a, he's uh, interacting with Nicodemus with a great deal of love and affection. So of course he'll be disappointed if Nicodemus says no to his invitation, but um, it's not the feeling of now you're not supporting my identity the way I need you to. There's none of that kind of messiness underlying Jesus' response to him. He cares about investing in the individual in front of him. So he's all in in his attention to the individual in front of him. He's not just a crowd speaker, <laughs> which is how we often think about Jesus speaking to the crowds. He does this, what he does with Nicodemus over and over again, stopping, slowing down to invest in individuals, to pay attention to their heart, and respond at that heart level. And he's patient and unhurried as he's doing it. He's relaxed. He's never defensive because he's not insecure like everyone else around him. 
And finally, I, I think this is important. He's fundamentally respect, respectful of boundaries. He's not, again, trying to sell Nicodemus on anything. He's inviting. He's not pleading or shaming. And he's not violating Nicodemus's boundaries to get what he wants. Um, I've said so many times on this podcast, the kingdom of God operates on, in, on invitation. God respects our boundaries so much that he will not violate them by simply doing what we are forcing us into something that we haven't responded invitationally to. So he's quite compelling in his invitations, though. If you watch this, if you, if you go and watch this scene and put yourself in the shoes of Nicodemus, you, it would be hard to resist what Jesus is offering if he offered that to you. It's very compelling. So these are some of the one things that we know for sure about Nicodemus and Jesus from this brief appearance. But let's just close off with uh, a couple of the other two encounters Nicodemus has <clears throat> with Jesus, just to close this off, to make sure that we've uh, covered our bases with Nicodemus. And I think you'll see in these two remaining encounters that all of these themes that we've just talked about show up again. So the first one is from John chapter 7, verses 45 through 52. Uh, and this is the, a scene where the temple guards had been sent out to arrest Jesus, who had been speaking publicly and saying, um, well, in the minds of the, the priests and the Pharisees, he'd been saying blasphemous things. So the, they send the temple guards out to go arrest Jesus, and the temple guards come back not having arrested him. So, so here we go, John 7, 45 through 52. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, well, why didn't you bring him in? Well, we've never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. It's interesting that Pharisees say here, is there a single one of us who believes in him? Guess who speaks up then in verse 50? Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? He asked. Now the, the Pharisees are furious with him. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. So of course, the Pharisees don't really understand where Jesus comes from. They're assuming he comes from Galilee, but he actually comes from Nazareth. And of course, the scriptures do say the Messiah comes from Nazareth. So um, they are misinformed. But uh, in this encounter where Nicodemus speaks up, what can we learn? Why, why does he risk his own status and safety to stick up for Jesus? Now, we know that uh, Nicodemus chooses not to follow Jesus and he chooses not to respond to that invitation, that must have been chewing at him, given how captured he, he is by the heart of Jesus. That decision must have chewed away at him. So what does Nicodemus do? He risks in the one place he can. He takes a tremendous risk to stick up for Jesus and to challenge that gathering of Pharisees. Why are you so quick to condemn this man? Um, there's been no evidence there's been no, uh, no, no opportunity for him to defend himself. There's been no hearing. 
and you're already convicting him. Clearly in this gathering, anyone saying that is going to stick out like a sore thumb. Nicodemus risks his reputation and maybe even his standing in the Sanhedrin to stand up for Jesus in this moment. Um, why would he do that? Maybe the same reason why you stick up for others in your life out of your experience of Jesus, your intimacy with Jesus, you have been given the courage to stick up for things that need to be stuck up for, maybe even to stick up directly for Jesus in your life. You have this courage, not because you've uh, summoned it or worked it up in your life. It's just the fruit of your own experience of him. I think Nicodemus couldn't sit still and listen to this given his experience of Jesus. He just couldn't. It was too difficult. The tension was too thick. He had to say something or else not be the man of integrity that he really is. Finally, let's look at the last time we see Nicodemus show up. It's in John chapter 19, verses 32, I'm sorry, 38 through 42. John 19, 38 through 42. And this is just after the crucifixion um, Jesus has just been pronounced dead, starting in verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. Now, often the Romans just left these bodies on these crosses to rot, basically, as a message to the Jews to not step out of line. So Joseph is asking for permission to take, take Jesus' body down from the cross. So um, with Joseph came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. So this is very expensive perfumed ointment that Nicodemus has brought with them, 75 pounds of it. So following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, both sort of secret followers of of Jesus, both afraid of what would happen to them if their secret following became public, they show themselves. They put themselves out there. They find a way to honor Jesus by risking um, their own reputation and maybe even their lives by asking to take the body and then tenderly, intimately prepare that body for the grave wrapping Jesus in all of these uh, uh, ointments, um, 75 pounds of it with the linen wrapping him. Again, think about this relative to the resurrection. They wrapped Jesus in linen cloths with 75 pounds of these, uh, these expensive, uh, the, these expensive uh, aloes and ointments um, wrapping him. <laughs> It would be pretty much impossible for Jesus to work, himself, work his way out of that had he not, after having been scourged and crucified. So, so it's an important thing to remember relative to the resurrection. But 
what is the significance of what Nicodemus does here? What does it tell us about his relationship with Jesus? I think it tells us that though Nicodemus is a cautious man, when it comes down to it, he can't help his, his, uh, the, the depth and reality of his relationship with Jesus and what he thinks about him. This is his, his last act of worship. Um, so, of course, Joseph and Nicodemus are deeply disappointed that what they thought was going to happen with Jesus did not, and that the inevitable happened, that Jesus was finally murdered. But to as an outward sign of their worship of him and the way that he has ruined their hearts for him, they take down his body, wrap it, and carefully place it in this unused grave. Unused grave. It's a powerful, public, risky statement, but also uh, an act that only those who have a sort of a relational intimacy would do. The care and concern they have at the very end. So what can we learn from Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus brings his curiosity to Jesus like a child, like an offering, like the, the two pennies that the, the woman offered up in the temple offering that Jesus noticed. It was two pennies, but she gave everything she had. And in that same way, uh, our curiosity that we bring to Jesus, our curiosity, or even maybe our skepticism is maybe our two pennies. It's our act of worship to bring them to him like a child. So what would you ask Jesus if he was standing in the room where you are right now? What offering of curiosity would you give him? What question would you ask him? What skepticism or doubt would you bring to the table to him? And how do you think he'd respond? Hmm. Well, if you think he would respond by welcoming uh, you dropping to your knees out of fear, maybe this scene in this encounter with Nicodemus changes that expectation. Maybe Jesus lifting Nicodemus to his feet and inviting him to take refuge in him um, will uh, give you the impetus to offer up to him today those nagging, curious, skeptical questions that you have. Offer it to him today as an act of worship. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Again, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode 10 for the links that I've talked about today. And uh, next week, we'll explore another of the Jesus people. I'm not sure who it's going to be yet, but uh, I can't wait to discover who it will be. So uh, join us again uh, next week on Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. This is a podcast from ricklawrence.com. And you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you again next week.